Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 237, Levine and Witherington on Luke, Part 2. This episode of the Trinity's Podcast is the second part of my conversation with distinguished New Testament scholars Dr. Amy Jill Levine and Dr. Ben Witherington III on their remarkable new book, which is the first ever biblical commentary authored by a Jewish scholar and by a Christian scholar. Without further ado then, Dr. Levine and Dr. Ben, welcome back to the Trinity's Podcast. Good to be back. Indeed. You write in the introduction, quote, ours is not a debating commentary, ours is a come let us reason together and talk commentary, end quote. And there are, in fact, many interesting, though friendly disagreements in this commentary. And I wondered if we could focus on one of them, which is called the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Dr. Ben, would you mind reading that for us? And then we'll hear Dr. Levine's comments. We're going to do the NRSV translation? Yes, so you can tell us uh, if it's not suitable. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. But the tax collector standing far off would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. Dr. Levine, in, in your discussion of this in the commentary, in your view, there are two voices here that have to be distinguished. There's the voice of Luke the evangelist, and there's the voice of Jesus of Nazareth. And what Luke has done, which is what any good minister would do, what any good storyteller would do, is say, here's a story I heard from somebody else. Now, let, let me give you a little bit of context. Let me give you a way of understanding this story. So I think Luke has provided us the introduction. Uh, this is about people who are just prideful, and they don't care about other folks. That's not inconsistent with the parable, but it's not necessary for the parable. So I think Luke has already skewed us, and I think the parable is about a whole lot more than people who are prideful. I think at the end, we have a couple of different taglines. That line about those who are exalted will be humbled, and those who are humbled will be exalted. The first will be last, and the last will be first. That's, that's just a floating story that's a perfectly good tagline for anything, but I'm not sure it goes with that parable, and I think it's actually remarkably ungenerous and non-compassionate. It's also like deck chairs on the Titanic, because as soon as the humble get exalted, they have to go back to the bottom of the line again. Um, And I'm worried about the translation. One could legitimately say, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. But you could read the same verses to say, this man went down to his home justified alongside the other. 
So I'm more inclined to look at this parable in light of first century Jewish views of atonement, the idea that if you do something that's really fabulous, that's gracious and compassionate and kind, that some of that goodness, the merit, rubs off on other people. We really are our brother's keepers. And it may well be that first century Jews hearing Jesus tell this parable would have thought, oh, the tax collector somehow managed to tap into that Pharisee's merit because he's got more merit than anybody else. He's, he's tithing, which, by the way, runs contrary to Luke's other comment about the Pharisees are lovers of money. If they were, he wouldn't be giving up all of his stuff, or at least a tenth of it. For me, the parable says, don't be prideful. I think there's a caricature of the Pharisee here. He's like a super Pharisee. Because of his uh, extreme... Yeah, because of his extreme uh, tithing and all that. Nobody's required to tithe or a tenth of everything. He's also, um, you know, he's got a little bit of self-importance there. He's a nice little caricature of the, you know, the overly righteous person. Um, And we all know some of those. I think the tax collector needs some help and he needs some help from the community. So the parable speaks in multiple ways. It says, look, your good deeds may help out somebody who you don't want to help out. But if they are helping out somebody you don't want to help, then you are responsible for that person. And maybe you ought to do something to help that person. The parable says that even tax collectors, despised people who work for the Roman government, can be righteous, can be faithful, and are in fact welcome in the temple in Jerusalem. They're not outcasts. And I would like to see at the end of the parable the generosity of God celebrated. The Pharisee and the tax collector both go home justified. The Pharisee realizing that the tax collector really was repentant, really was of concern, and the tax collector realizing that maybe that Pharisee might keep his eye on him to say, now that you've turned the corner, now that you've admitted your sin and repented, now let me help keep you from sinning again. Dr. Ben, you agree? Well, I think it's an overly optimistic reading of the parable itself, leave us, leaving the framework out of it. Um, and no, I honestly think this is a contrast parable, and that's not atypical of various other parables. But it's not a contrast between all good over here and all bad over here. For example, the Pharisee is not a hypocrite. Nothing about this suggests he's a hypocrite. Indeed, he's a pious person. His problem is not his piety. His problem is how he views that in terms of merit before God. He's very happy to be judgmental about others who are not equally pious or equally practicing his religion in the same way. So I think What we have here is an example of a person who touts himself, but at the expense of someone else. I thank God that I'm not like this tax collector. Well, I think he was genuinely thankful he was not like somebody who collaborated with the Romans and did this, that, and the other. So I think we're dealing with a a contrast parable. On the other hand, The essence of what's going on with the uh, tax collector is he knows that he needs mercy from God. He realizes that he's a sinner and that he needs mercy from God. And in that regard, Jesus says, precisely because he knows that he is not 100% righteous in the eyes of God, 
he's going to go away in right standing with God because he throws himself on the mercy of God. So I think the parable is about a contrast. I agree that A.J. could be right in the way she reads that last line that he they went down together alongside of each other, but I don't think it's suggesting that they um, are in the same spiritual condition or position by the end of the story. I think there is a contrast. There might also be a sense for the Pharisee about there but for the grace of God go I. He's not talking about people who are lacking personal piety, you know, like whether they keep the dietary regulations or the Sabbath. No. He's talking about thieves, rogues, adulterers, and tax collectors. In other words, people who violate the common welfare, people who create harm. And he's saying, thank God I'm not like them. I work in a maximum security prison, and every once in a while when I leave that prison, I, I just like, thank you that I don't have a gun in my house because I might be inclined to use it. Or thank you that I grew up with a a two-parent household and I was loved and cared for. Thank you that I was not in a neighborhood where I might have fallen in with some people who might have misled me. I get the Pharisee's point. I still find him a little sanctimonious, but I get him. And I agree with Ben. He's not a hypocrite. No. But he is judgmental. Yeah. And I think Luke's not happy with judgmentalism in various ways. I mean, I think, I think we see that in several places in Luke Acts. But uh, this is a fictional story. And precisely because it is a parable, it is potentially multivalent. And so it's possible to say that her reading gets at some aspects of the parable that mine doesn't and is perfectly valid. And, and vice versa. And vice versa. See, I don't think historical narrative has the same multivalency that that parables do. When the Trinity's podcast returns, what's distinctive about Luke's gospel? And also, what's this author's attitude towards women? So last week, the two of you agreed that there is an author here and that this author seems to have had some version of the first and second gospels in the New Testament Mm -hmm. and yet took it upon himself to produce a, quote, new gospel, although with a lot of recycling going on, if I could put it that way, Mm -hmm. uh, or or repurposing. Mm Mm-hmm. So, I mean, do you have any sense of what it was he thought was missing or what he thought should be different? I mean, what's distinctive of this guy's theology or his Christology or both? Let's first say, let's compare Mark, Matthew, and Luke just for a minute. 95% of Mark with a 52% verbatim rate is in Matthew. Only 55% of Mark is in Luke with a slightly higher verbatim rate, 53%, okay? So what has Luke done? He's left more room for some unique stuff that he wants to add to the picture. 
He's not just going to recycle Mark or Mark and Matthew, for that matter. He's going to do his own thing. And one of the things he's going to add is these wonderful narrative parables. They are not in these other Gospels. So one of the things he's making room for is precisely like this parable that we've just discussed. I mean, and indeed, the most famous parables are these longer narrative parables, the parable of the Good Samaritan, the parable of the prodigal son. We could go on. So I'm very thankful that he made room for this more teaching material, because frankly, there's not that much teaching material in Mark other than in Mark 4 and in Mark 13. More action. Yeah, absolutely it is. And Matthew has a whole different agenda where he's going to have blocks of teaching material, five or six blocks of teaching material. So I think Luke is his own man. He's doing his own thing. He is basing it on sources, but he's making his own presentation. And uh, he adds a lot to the discussion, I think. Luke has an agenda, as all authors do. I think Luke is much more interested in talking about Jerusalem than the other two Gospels. Mm -hmm. So we start in Jerusalem in the temple with John the Baptist's dad. We end in Jerusalem with the disciples awaiting the birth of, in effect, the birth of the church. I think Luke has a whole lot more stories about women Um, But here, Ben and I disagree about how those stories are deployed. I think Luke loves women as long as they're supporting the church and letting the men run it. Luke is, uh, I think, a little bit more interested in not only Jesus' teacher, but Jesus as a, a bit of an upgrade. Jesus can give the scribes as good as they get. Jesus can interpret Torah. Jesus can come into the synagogue and read the text. We see that at the beginning of Luke 4. So he's making Jesus look a, a little bit more, I suspect, educated. My view would be that Luke is highlighting that if he's not unique, one of the distinctive features of Jesus's teachings is that he had female disciples like Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Susanna and others. And I don't think that he's simply treating them as the hospitality brigade. So I don't think he's trying to sort of damn them with faint praise. I think he's really highlighting something that was important for the ongoing movement, namely that there were women like Priscilla and Joanna and others on an ongoing basis that played very important roles as disciples and even uh, leaders in the movement. I would be a little more careful there, I think, in terms of the language. The only female disciple who Luke mentions is Tabitha, who shows up in the book of Acts. And I I think there might be different categories. Luke is the one who separates apostles out from disciples. Of course, there are women in the movement. Uh, There were women following Jesus. And then the question is, how does the gospel writer want to tell us about these women? Mark, in chapter 15, at the cross, says, oh, by the way, there were women who followed him from the galley. I didn't know that back in chapter 1, and now I have to go back and reread Mark to put them in. Luke at least lets me know they're there by chapter 8. Luke has the women, they're not the hospitality brigade. I don't think they're like darning socks and making soup. But I do think they're serving in patronage capacities. In other words, somebody's got to float this movement because Jesus is engaging in free health care. He's not taking any money. Who's going to pay the bills? And I think Luke is quite happy to admit that there are certain women, some of them with some means. It doesn't mean they're rich, but it means they have some disposable income. These women serving as patrons are helping to support the movement, not dissimilar to women who are helping to support the Pharisaic movement. I know if you look at later Jewish material, there's a pattern of a rabbi having 
I think, always male disciples that kind of shadow him and observe his life and so on. I mean, is that also a first century thing? Would that be part of why the Twelve are all men? Um, Rabbis also have women who are interlocutors, and there are occasional, although quite rare, women cited in Mishnah and Talmud as legal authorities, particularly a woman named Beruria, who happens to be married to Rabbi Meyer. Jesus is distinct from the rabbis as we construct rabbinic life, because Jesus is peripatetic. He's going from place to place to place. That The nice line that you find in both Matthew and Luke about foxes have holes and birds have their nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Um, he's got a base of operations in Capernaum, but I don't think he has like a solid base. The rabbis are principally based in schoolhouses. They're not itinerant teachers who are wandering around. They have day jobs. They're cobblers or textile workers or farmers, or Paul, for example, as, as a leather worker. There's no reason for them to itinerate. You can't look at rabbinic literature and say, oh, this is what Jesus was doing. You have to be very, very careful. Yeah. Rabbinic literature is at least a century and a half later, and more than that. And Jesus is not the rabbis. The rabbis are a group. They keep talking with each other, and they are all equal. Jesus is the leader of his particular band. They are not all equal. Peter does not have the same leadership role that Jesus does. And you could even push that further by noticing that Jesus doesn't go around quoting other Jewish teachers. He, he doesn't say, I say on the authority of Rabbi Hillel, who says on the authority of Rabbi Shammai, quote, uh, Jesus speaks on his own authority. Uh, he interprets the scripture without a sort of citing sources like footnotes in a term paper. He even may have used a phrase like you've heard it said, but I say, though that's in Matthew, it's not in Luke. He amends his own sayings up front, you know, instead of somebody else affirming it, he affirms it himself that he's telling the truth from the outset. So there are some distinctive things about him, and, and that's one of the reasons I stress that Jesus was a sage. As well as a prophetic figure, he was a sage, and, and so he didn't operate like later rabbis did. And there are connections here as well to other pockets of early Judaism. It is true that Jesus will begin a statement with amen, amen, which I think the NRSV translates truly, truly, or something like yeah. that. So does Jeremiah, right? This is not a unique formulation. When it comes to citing texts, the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Hodayot, the hymn psalms, they do the same thing. So Jesus has distinct qualities, as we all do, but he fits quite nicely within a first century Jewish context. Mm -hmm. The rabbis also have distinct qualities, some of which might be traced back to the first century, others of which are post-destruction of the temple, qualities that have developed after the time of Jesus. When the Trinity's podcast returns, our authors discuss their differences about the famous parable of the prodigal son. Let's talk a little bit about what may be the most famous passage in Luke, the uh, parable that's usually called the prodigal son. You have quite a deep, uh, detailed back and forth discussion about this in the commentary, but if we could maybe just talk about some basic disagreements 
Some readers will look at that and say, obviously, the father represents God, and obviously, the second son that stayed at home is way out of line complaining about this. The standard reading is that the father is God, the prodigal is the repentant Christian, or perhaps the Gentile, because the prodigal spends time working for a pig farmer, and the older brother represents the Pharisees, or more broadly, the Jews. The older brother, qua Jew, does not want to have anything to do with Gentiles or repentant sinners, wants to keep all of daddy's goodies for himself, and is resentful that the Father God is gracious. Standard reading. And what's wrong with that? There are several things wrong with that. The first thing to notice, I think, is that perhaps the father had neglected his older son. When the older son complains, never once did you even give me a goat to share with my friends, and yet I've always been with you. I've done all of this work on the farm and this, that, and the other. Maybe the father was guilty of showing favoritism towards the younger son. Now, one of the points of debate about the parable is, is it true or is it not true that the father would normally only give the inheritance out in his will and not before he died? And if he did give it out before he died, then did he have no obligation to that son anymore? Was the son, in fact, suggesting to the father that you're as good as dead, give me my inheritance now, I'm going to go off and do what I want to do? I mean, there are a lot of sort of darker questions you can ask about this parable. How goody two-shoes is the father really? Is he really a figure for God? Is the prodigal son really all that prodigal, or is he within his rights to ask for it before his father dies? There are all those kinds of questions to be asked about this. But as she said, the traditional reading is that here is somebody who goes off and sows his wild oaks, whether he's a Jew or a Gentile or whoever he may be. And then the crucial turning point in the parable is, but when he came to his right mind, he said to himself in his self-talk, I will go and prostrate myself before my father and say, treat me as one of the hired hands. I no longer deserve to be treated as one of your sons. And so then the question is, is that internal dialogue talking about a conversion or just a change of heart or a change of mind? How should we read this? I want to resist reading the parable as an allegory of Christian conversion because I don't think that's what Jesus intended, and I really don't think that's what's going on. But what I do think is that this is a parable about second chances and about somebody genuinely changing their mind and realizing the error of their ways. And I'm not sure. I don't like this younger son. He comes to himself. Jesus knows the word for repentance. It would have been nice if Jesus had said, and he repented, but he doesn't. He comes to himself and he thinks to himself. And in the Bible, generally, when people have interior monologue, when they're thinking to themselves, it's a sign of conniving and planning. And he says, oh, not I repent. He says, how many of my father's hired hands have bread and enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I know what I'll do. I'll go to dad and I'll sound religious. So He's manipulative in that reading. Yeah. Um, so 
I, you know, I don't trust him. But if at the end of the parable, it might not even matter whether he repented or not. If there is an issue of second chance, and I think Ben is right about that, I think the second chance is the relationship between the father and the older brother. The first two parables in Luke chapter 15 are about counting, about a sheep owner who had a hundred sheep and he loses one, about a woman who has 10 coins and she loses one. And now we have, there was a man who had two sons and he's lost them both. And now how does he get them back? One of the things I think that's a real plus to this commentary is that AJ is able to bring this her wealth of knowledge of the longer Jewish tradition to contextualize what might be going on here and then look at the interrelationships of these three lost parables in light of that sort of thing in a way that I just couldn't have done. And I think that's one of the things that really enriches this is that we both have things to contribute, but they're not exactly the same thing. And and that, that makes it a better commentary. Part of this, I think, might be our own educational backgrounds, our own socialization. Ben has grown up with this material. I mean, he heard it in churches. You did youth group, right? Yep. You're, you're Methodist. Of course you did youth group. Yep. I was the um, MYF leader. <laughs> he's had this his whole life, and with that comes certain traditional readings. I've come through with different readings and different traditions, so I can bring to bear stories that I heard in the synagogue, my stories that I heard in in summer camp and in the Jewish version of the youth group, and say, oh, I have a repository of stories as well. And when I look at the parables in light of the stories that I know, I may wind up seeing things that Ben doesn't, and he in turn will see things that I don't. And here's the interesting thing about that. She's an insider to Judaism and understanding this in light of the larger context of Judaism. But I'm an insider to Christianity and the long history of how Christians have read this. Each of those two things are valuable ways of helping get at an understanding of the text and maybe multiple understandings of the text that each one of us couldn't have done on our own. And so I think that's another one of the real values of this is we're both insiders, but we're just insiders from different insides. I'm not inside Judaism. I'm not a part of that. And she's actually more often in the church than I am in the synagogue. And and so I think that brings a, a real richness to what's going on in this commentary. Well, these two camps have been separated pretty decisively for a very long time, but in the time of this text, things were a lot mushier. Yes. Right? I mean, this exactly. is basically, well, Jesus's time is in a Jewish context, and then Luke, you both think that he's a Gentile, or yep. you assume mm-hmm. he's a Gentile? Yeah. So he's, he might, he's, he's he kind of the a, outsider a little bit. Well, but. he might have been a God-fearer. He might have had some association with the synagogue. I mean, I keep asking myself, how in the world does he know that the LXX so well if he had nothing to do with the synagogue? But he, he, yes, I think he's a Gentile. One of my favorite sayings from C.H. Dodd is that the parables were written by Jesus to tease the mind into active thought. What we would hope from this commentary is that it is rich enough, broad enough, and stirs up enough rabbits and rabbit trails to tease the mind into active thought. And if it does that and causes one to ponder anew the Gospel of Luke, then we will have done our jobs. Well, I think you met your goal, honestly, having read through it. It's a very stimulating book and well-written, too. Well, thank you. Um, The mind should be teased into active imagination, I think it was. 
we also want to put a smile on people's lips uh, because some of the stuff is actually funny. We want people to be touched by this, which is why every chapter ends with a bridging the horizon section that says, well, now that we've hashed out the literature and the history, what do we do with this? We want people to see the excitement of biblical interpretation, why Ben and I love it so much and why it's so much fun. And it's not just game playing. We're talking about sacred scripture here. This is theologically for high stakes. And we want people to see how one can agree to disagree about fundamental matters and remain good friends. Yep. Amen to that. When the Trinity's podcast returns, is Luke's idea of the miraculous conception of Jesus compatible with Joseph being Jesus's natural father? And does Luke assert or at least assume the deity of Christ? Dr. Levine, in chapter one of the commentary here, there was something that surprised me a little bit, and I'll ask you the question since you're the primary author of chapter one. You argue that according to Luke, Jesus had both a human father and a divine father. My question is, the account attributes her pregnancy to a miracle performed by God, so isn't the reader supposed to infer that Joseph is not the biological father? But Joseph is also the father in part through the genealogy, perhaps as was supposed. Joseph takes care of the family. Joseph is Mary's husband. So I don't see any reason not to give Joseph his due credit. I guess maybe I wasn't sure how much you were stirring. I mean, in some sense, he's obviously Jesus's father. He's the guy that raised him. Yeah. But you you brought up um, nowadays lesser known instances of pagan deities where Zeus or somebody supposed to be a, a kid's father, but and yet there is a man who had relations with a woman, mm-hmm. and somehow there's kind of a dual agency thing going on there. Mm-hmm. I thought you were suggesting that. One can look at it that way as well. Look, I don't want to get into the fine-tuned details of Mary's gynecological situation. It would have been nice if Luke had cited, as Matthew does, the Septuagint version of Isaiah 14 about a virgin conceiving. Luke does not do that. Luke gives us a nice chat between Mary and the angel, where the angel says to Mary, and I'm just paraphrasing slightly, you're going to get pregnant. And Mary says, well, how's that supposed to happen? Because I'm still a virgin. And the angel says, the Holy Spirit will overshadow you, and that to be born of you will be called what, Holy Son of God, something like that. Ben, that doesn't mean that Mary and Joseph didn't have sex. That just means that at the time that Jesus is conceived, there's the activity of the Holy Spirit, which is overshadowing her. These are not mutually exclusive. So if we read Luke in light of Matthew, we will come up with a virginal conception, no question. If we just read Luke on Luke's own, the idea of double paternity becomes a possible reading, not a necessary one, but a possible one. Um. I'm not so sanguine it's possible to read Luke that way if it's the Holy Spirit doing the heavy lifting here. But what I would absolutely say is that if Joseph accepted this situation 
and becomes what we might call the adoptive father or the stepfather of Jesus, he is still nonetheless the father of Jesus, and Jesus is entitled to be considered his son in various ways. And so, um, you know, I mean, I think this is not a yes or no question. It's certainly in some ways. But, for example, when you get to the end of Luke 2, 241 to 52, there he is in the temple, the Wunderkind, right? And the parents show up, and Mary says, your father and I have been looking for you. And Jesus then seems to suggest as an alternative, didn't you know I had to be about my father's business? And he's not talking about Joseph, right? There is a distinction made there in that story, which again suggests that we are not to think that earlier in Luke 1 and 2 that Joseph was possibly the biological father of Jesus. I think it's a question of emphasis. When Mary says, your father and I, I think she's taking that very, very seriously. Mm -hmm. So Jesus is talking about priorities. Jesus tells his followers to address God as father. We all have father, father in heaven, as Matthew would put it. But that doesn't stop human paternity from also existing. We also have fathers on earth. Dr. Ben, I wanted to ask you about the deity of Christ in Mm -hmm. this book. Mm -hmm. I mean, I I do take a contrary view about this. It seems to me that if, say, one was a Christian in this time and the gospel according to Luke was 100% of our addition to the Old Testament, uh, Mm -hmm. I don't see how we would come up with the deity of Christ from the book. So just off the top of my head... uh, Jesus has a mom, and it's not mentioned anything about his career before he was he was within her. Everybody notices in Luke there's this big theme that he's constantly praying to God. Mm-hmm. I think he's portrayed as a faithful servant, which isn't it's not a big New Testament theme, but it's it's maybe more prominent in Luke than other places. In the commentary, you mentioned he's presented as not being omniscient. He gets tempted. Presumably, God can't be. He says only God's good. His power to carry out his mission and his calling are from God, right? Chapter 4. In the end, he dies and God raises him. At least in Acts, it's God who does the raising. Yep. And the main claim of the book, arguably, is that Jesus is God's Messiah, God's anointed one, who's this human special agent, if I could put it that way. I mean, doesn't this reflect the author's view that Jesus is not God, but is rather this very special man? I think it depends on what you mean by God. I tell my students quite regularly, Jesus didn't run around Galilee saying, hi folks, I'm God, because the word God had a very specific meaning in early Judaism and even before that. It meant Yahweh. It didn't mean the second person of the Trinity. He didn't run around claiming that he is that person in the Old Testament. He's not claiming A.K.A. the Father. Correct. He's not claiming that he's the father whatsoever, but that doesn't foreclose the question because Luke presents Jesus, just as Mark and Matthew, as the son of man. Now, the question becomes whether this goes back to uh, Daniel 7, 13, and 14, ultimately. And there you have the Ancient of Days, but you also have this one like a son of man, who's given power and authority and an everlasting kingdom and is to be worshipped. That's one way you could read the Aramaic, okay? Now, 
I don't accept that that's appropriate in regard to angels or angelic figures. I, I think that it is, in fact, the case that Luke understood that Jesus claiming to be that figure in Daniel 7 is making a divine claim of some kind. Okay, So interestingly enough, it's not coming from him claiming to be the divine Son of God. It's coming from him claiming to be the Son of Man as prefigured in Daniel 7, 13, and 14. But in addition to that, I think Luke understands the concept of divine condescension. And what I mean by that is, if you're going to have a corporate merger between God and a human being named Jesus— then there has to be divine self-limitation. So I accept that Luke is presenting the Son of God has limited himself in terms of time, space, knowledge, power, and mortality. In order to be truly human, fully human, the divine Son of God had to limit himself in those ways. I think Luke places the emphasis on the fact that Jesus is fully human, fully human, not some sort of docetic figure, fully human. And as a result of that, he accepted these limitations. Even in Luke, when you get to the temptation scene in Luke 4, what's going on there is, if you are the divine son of God, turn these stones into bread. Now, I've known plenty of people who could turn bread into stones, but I've never met any human being that was tempted to turn stones into bread. These are temptations that only a divine person would have. Okay, not mere mortal human temptations. And so what Luke is doing there is presenting Jesus as tempted to push the God button, which he had, but he doesn't because that would have obliterated his true humanity. So I I think that Luke, in an indirect way, is portraying him as both human and divine and not merely human. You see a two natures Christology in Luke? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. I think. I mean, look, the things you mentioned, it seems to me, could be things that an empowered prophet could do. I mean, is it possible that Moses could have abused his power? Well, in fact, he is accused of abusing his power when he gets water out of the rock. Yep. But that's that's not him using his divine nature, right? That's no. Just um, and I think Jesus performed his miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why in the Book of Acts. We can expect people that are just mere mortals, like a Peter or a Paul, might also perform those kind of miracles. Sure. There was a point in the, uh, in the book of Luke and a point in the commentary where I wanted more of an answer that was given. So this is the place where Jesus stumps everybody with the question, how can David be the Messiah's? How can uh, David be his son? He's presented as David's Lord in the psalm. How can he be called David's Lord? So Psalm 110.1. You two left that unanswered as it's unanswered in the text. But Mm -hmm. I was thinking, well, yeah, but if you think the same person wrote Acts, the answer there seems to be because God has exalted him to his right hand. And so he's now David's Lord, the one Lord under the one God, like Paul talks about. But you see, that would, that would not be something the historical Jesus would say in that setting during the gospel ministry. And, and see, I think Luke is very careful about this. I think Luke does not fully reveal who Jesus is until we get to Easter and beyond. And that's because 
the disciples didn't have that kind of understanding during the progress of the ministry itself. And so there is a progression towards a more full understanding of, oh, that's who he is. Even if that was not clear along the way, that's who he is. And I think you get a window on that from the cross. Look at what happens on the cross. I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Now, what kind of person can give, give that kind of guarantee? Not a mere rabbi. Yeah, a person with an authority to forgive sins. Correct. And who's that? That's not a mere mortal. Well, in the version of uh, the healing and forgiving sins in Matthew, Matthew, lest you agree with the crowd which says, who can forgive sins but God alone, he has the crowd react and say, and the crowd, you know, praise God who gave such authority to, to mm-hmm. men. Yeah, we human beings can have it as a derivative authority. But in the case of Jesus, it's not derivative. He has that authority. And he never says, I got this from dad. You think that's Luke's view? I do. Mm-hmm. Here's another way, of, if I can just add in, because I know this is your conversation. I am not a theologian. But in the first century, there are, there are degrees of divinity. Today we think you're either human or you're God, and that's it, and there's a bifurcation. Mm-hmm. In the first century, there are some people who are a little bit more than human, and there are some divine beings who are a little bit less than God. Angels are divine beings. Uh, they're not clearly not human, but they're not God either. Right. And Satan and his, his, his entourage have the same issue. Um, in the Roman world, uh, divine births can make you a little bit more than human. Alexander the Great, a little bit more than human. Pythagoras. Abraham. Hercules. Hercules, um, or any of those demigods. So it may well be that some people looked at Jesus as, you know, not God the Father, because that would be a problem, but as not quite human either. Mm-hmm. And depending upon the view of deity you bring to the Gospel of Luke, I mean, what do you presuppose when you begin to read the book? You might get different impressions about what kind of deity Jesus is. Ultimately, Luke leaves it as a mystery. The story is not complete yet. Jesus does not have, he doesn't have the job fully done because he hasn't come back. So we're still living in this type of eschatological expectation. It's not clear to me what Luke thinks will happen in terms of Jesus' job description once that end time comes. Yeah. One of the interesting things to me that Luke does bring to the task that you don't get from the other synoptic writers is an emphasis on Jesus as the Savior. And, of course, you can get that from John as well. But what's interesting to me about that is that if you really know your Old Testament, if we're talking about Savior with a capital S, well, that's just Yahweh. The one who's rescuing the psalmist or whoever else is is God Almighty. That's who's the real Savior, the real rescuer. And even when you get into the later part of the Old Testament, I mean, the suffering servant is not called a Savior, you know. And so I think there are little ways, without it being intrusive, that Luke has in his narrative a reminder that he's certainly a spirit-empowered teacher and healer and all those things, but he's also more than that. But, and this is just me, I think Luke is writing as a historian. 
And as a historian, he believes that the understanding of who Jesus is is processively revealed over time, and that the disciples were really the disciples until after Easter. There was so much they did not get. And so in his narrative framework, he's happy. For example, in the story of the widow that loses her son in Nain, he's happy to call Jesus the Lord in the narrative framework, but not in the narrative itself, not in the story itself. So he's letting his Christian reader know, oh yes, Jesus is the Lord, and that's all true, but it was only historically, processively understood and revealed. God has made him both Lord and Christ. Correct. Yeah, Acts 2. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But do you think that Luke, I mean, Dr. Levine kind of suggested that, you know, does Luke leave the door open to him being a second and lesser deity? I mean, you have Origen and Justin mm-hmm. explicitly say that the Logos is a second and uh, implicitly that a lesser deity yeah. as well. You, do you see that in Luke? I don't. I tend to agree with Richard Baucom and how he handles this question. The real problem is the categories we put on this discussion as a result of Nicaea and Chalcedon. Richard talks about the divine identity and talking about Jesus being part of the divine identity. I'm happier with that kind of language than other language in regard to that. He's a participant in the divine identity. Now, how exactly that's the case, we could discuss and we could debate, but that sets him apart from other teachers, other healers, his disciples, and frankly, anybody else that was also 100% human. Thanks to both of you. You're welcome. Thank you. This week's thinking music has been the track Beyond the Warriors by Geefrog. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode where you can listen to or download that entire track. listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.